Let's turn our attention back to 2 Peter, chapter number 2. We're going to begin at verse number 14. The Apostle Peter, writing, I believe, in the first part of 64, is quite concerned about false teachers coming into the church, causing trouble. Now, he's not the first one that's been concerned about that. Uh, Paul was very concerned about false teachers arising inside the church. And so he is focusing on this idea that they are, they are looking for greed and power for themselves. Uh, verse 14, he says, They have eyes full of adultery. So there is a sexual element that we're going to keep finding out about in this section of first century church history, where false teachers are gratifying their own physical desires uh, by using their position of leadership in the church. And we know, we know that that has happened repeatedly throughout church history, and we even see headlines and get very frustrated uh, when they happen about uh, modern-day uh, leaders engaging in that sort of inappropriate behavior. Uh, they're insatiable for sin. They can't get enough of it. They entice unsteady souls. That's one of the big problems. Because of their leadership position, they're not just impacting themselves with their activities. They're impacting all the people in the church. They have hearts trained in greed. There's the financial element. Accursed children. So they are the bad ones in the family of humanity. And then he uses an example from the Old Testament. Now, when we're talking about all this, I think we very often think in the sense of these bad church leaders are wolves in sheep's clothing. I'm going to tweak that a little bit. I think they're wolves in shepherd's clothing. So they have presented themselves as the representatives of God himself. But then they engage in things that go against the work of God. And so there is a prime example of that in the Old Testament uh, dealing with uh, the history of Israel. Uh, the story is found in Numbers chapter 22, 23, 24. Uh, it's when Israel has arrived in the area immediately east of the crossing into the Promised Land that's by Jericho. And so they're actually encamped in what is referred to as the Plains of Moab. Now, these plains uh, were part of the ancestral territory of the Moabite people. Uh, but the Moabite king has had to deal with 
other countries or other ethnic groups taking over his territory in recent history. Uh, But when the Israelis came through, the Israelis wiped the floor with those bad guys that had caused Moab so much trouble. And now Israel was encamped in the plains of Moab. And so the king of Moab, looking at that, made the assessment that he could not take on Israel militarily, because obviously they beat the guys that had beat him. Uh, But he really didn't want them there in the plains of Moab anymore. He wanted them destroyed. He wanted them uh, beaten. And so the only thing that he can think of is, I need someone to come in that has connections in the spirit world that can put a curse on these people. And when he's checking around, he finds out there there is a genuine prophet of what we know to be the true God, the creator of the book of Genesis story. Uh, And this guy is a prophet of that God, and his name is Baalam. Now, there's a little bit of disagreement about what his name means, but I think it probably means that he is the Lord of the people. So, Lord in the sense of leader. And so that uh, represents kind of a, a shepherding position. Now, verse 15, this is the tie-in to the bad guys that Peter is concerned about. Forsaking the right way. Now, remember, the way is the Jewish way of referring to the church. Peter is Jewish. Peter is writing a lot to Jewish people. So, forsaking the right way. They have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing. So that gets into the specifics of Balaam's story, which you should go and read on your own. Again, Numbers 22 through 24. When he is first hired to come, uh, he he um, refuses the job because God tells him that he's not going to be able to curse the Israeli people. Uh, but after he is repeatedly offered more and more wealth from the king of Moab, he wants to go because he'd like to put that stuff in his own pocket. And eventually God allows him to go. But it is clear from the story context that as he goes, he is focused more and more on how can I do what the king of Moab wants me to do so that I can get the goodies. And so God sends an angel to basically warn him off from that attitude. The angel stands in the path, and Balaam's donkey goes swerving off the path, and Balaam beats it back on to the way. The angel takes another position farther down the uh, road, and uh, again, 
the donkey veers off and gets beaten uh, back to the path. And then finally, the angel takes a stand uh, in a super narrow position of the road so that the donkey can't go around. And so the donkey just plops down and won't go at all. Go at all. And then Balaam gets off the donkey and proceeds to just light into it, just wail on it, uh, beating the poor little donkey. And at that moment, God gave the donkey the ability to speak. And the donkey basically said, I have been your donkey for a very long time, since you were young. Have I ever done anything like this before? And uh, Balaam engages the donkey and says, no, but if I had a sword, I'd kill you where you stand or where you lay. Uh, and uh, that's when God opens Baalim's eyes so that he can see the angel with the sword, which is what the donkey was trying to avoid. And the angel then tells Balaam, if I uh, had not had... Uh, consideration for your beast, I would have killed you and spared her. Uh, but she basically tried to save your life, is what uh, is communicated in the story. And so in all of that, Balaam's greed is highlighted. And uh, just to continue the story all the way to its end, uh, eventually um, he offers a bunch of prophecies that bless uh, Israel instead of curse them, which makes uh, the Moabite king even more angry. And at the end of it, he finally tells the king, look, I can't curse them, but if you will do the following thing, they will get God to curse them himself. That is, you uh, set up arrangements between your young people and their young people to get together for a party and worship your God, and uh, God will curse them himself. And that worked. And a bunch of Israelis did end up dying uh, in those circumstances, and it was all because of the sinful advice of this Balaam, who used to be the prophet of the true and living God. Um, and he ends up being uh, killed uh, in some military action uh, during that same time period as the reward for his sinful behavior. Okay, so that's the story in a nutshell. So here in 2 Peter 2, 15, they followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from his wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression, a speechless donkey, spoke with human voice, and restrained the prophet's madness. So these bad guys in the first century world of Peter, and the bad guys inside the church ever since then, they're on that same page, and they're going down that same road. And if they don't repeat or repent of their sinful greediness, their sinful leadership, they too will come under the judgment of God, just like Balaam did. Uh, Peter continues to describe these guys, and he uses some very colorful language. These are waterless 
springs. Now, how helpful to a person who is thirsty is a waterless spring? It's just an empty hole in the ground. It's not of any good. It won't help. They are mists driven by a storm. Uh, if you can imagine this, this rolling fog coming in in front of a um, storm front, and it just blows in, and it really doesn't refresh the land. Um, it just kind of blows by, and then comes the damaging wind. How helpful is that? to a place that needs steady rain in order to grow the crops. It's not useful. That's what these guys are. They are useless to what God intends for the church. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. That's kind of a echoing back to what happened to the fallen angels of Genesis chapter 6, they are being held in reserve for their ultimate judgment. Uh, We could think about those men and women who died in their sin in the floodwaters. They are reserved in a dark place awaiting their judgment. Same thing for the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, That's what's going to happen to these guys if they don't repent. For, speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. Again, as we're starting to wrap up the New Testament letters, we are going to see more and more of this commentary of false leaders who encourage sinful behavior, approve of it, uh, and that would include wild sexual behavior, uh, that it doesn't matter what your body does, uh, you are perfectly fine in God's sight. And we are seeing that sort of message again coming into modern-day, quote, churches, end quote, where people will sincerely say, God loves you just the way you are. God approves of your love. Uh, And that is not a biblical message. Uh, Each circumstance, each situation has to be considered in the light of God's eternal word. But these guys, they're good with that. Uh, Even though um, some people have just barely gotten out of that lifestyle, and now they're being told it's okay to go back into it. Verse number 19, they promise them freedom. See, it's okay, do what you want but they themselves are slaves of corruption. See, the problem is the reason they give the message, do what you want, is because that's what they want for themselves. I want to do whatever I want to do. Uh, For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. 
and that sounds very Pauline uh, because he's he's talked about this idea that we are enslaved by, by sin. And so that's what these teachers, these false teachers, these false leaders are letting people have happen in their lives. They're becoming slaves to sin. And then Peter says, uh, we see here the the ultimate end is worse than what it would have been if they'd been totally ignorant. It says, if after they've escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that, that's talking about they've come into contact with the gospel, they've responded to the gospel, they have verbalized their faith and their repentance, and they may have even lived for a while in that state of being a Christian. But then he says, and then they again, they are entangled in them and overcome. So they go back to their old way of life. We can refer to these folks as backsliders, we can call them reprobates. We can call them uh, rebels. But they once were saved, and then they walk away from Jesus. And they become entangled in all this again and overcome, and the last state has become worse for them than the first. How, how can that be? Because... They had tasted of the heavenly gift. That's kind of the wording that we'll see when we get to the book of Hebrews in chapter 6. They found out what it felt like to be saved, and then they walked away from it. And that is a sad state of affairs. Verse 21, for it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it, to turn back from the Holy Commandment delivered to them. Uh, they would at least have some sort of excuse for themselves still if they had never heard the gospel and repented. Then having done so, to return back into the world of sin. Uh, Peter says, what the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit. That's Proverbs 26, 11. Uh, and any of us that have been around dogs, we know that that too often happens. And we find it disgusting, don't we? The dog returns to its own vomit. And then a uh, proverb that you won't find in the, in the book of Proverbs, but apparently it was common in the first century, the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. And so the, the pig gets all cleaned up. For some reason, my head always goes back to uh, a childhood book, Charlotte's Web, uh, when the pig uh, gets all cleaned up for the fair, right? Well, after you're all cleaned up, it's a horrible thing to then go back 
and flop back down in the muck and the mire of the pig pen because then all of that cleaning effort is erased. It's wasted. And so that's Peter's purpose in uh, using these Proverbs is for us to understand how sad, how utterly horrific it is for people, leaders in particular, that have once served the Lord, believed in the Lord, uh, been saved by the Lord, to turn their backs on that and walk away. And sometimes if they're a leader, to teach bad things rather than the good things and cause people to leave uh, the true faith and to deviate out into such horrendous, self-centered, flesh-centered, sinful lifestyles again. We we don't want to see that. Uh, So, best thing we can do is what Paul told us uh, when he was talking to the uh, the leadership of the Ephesian church, he, he told the leadership, you need to keep an eye on e- each other. You need to watch each other. And so all of you who have home churches, and I hope you do, you need to keep an eye on your leadership. Make sure that none of them, not one of them, is deviating out into false teaching, into false leadership, uh, because you can't allow that to get started, because it's just like a, a, little, a little break in the earthen dam. That little trickle, if it's not plugged back up again, will rapidly erode into a catastrophic um, collapse of the entire dam, and you'll lose your congregation over it if you allow false leaders to get a foothold in your church. Chapter number three, Peter says, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. So that's how we know these two, leader, these two letters are very tightly connected. I, I think that there's probably only a matter of a few months between the writing of them. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. So he says, my purpose in reaching out to you like this is to help you remember what has already been laid in front of you. Now, Peter has been at his apostolic work for a little over 30 years, probably. Um, Remember, Pentecost, I think, took place uh, in the spring going into the summer of 33. This is probably right around that same time in 64. And so, the holy prophets that he's referencing here would be the prophets of the Old Testament, the writings of the 22 scrolls of the Jewish people, which are exactly equivalent 
other than arrangement uh, with the uh, 39 books of our Old Testament. But not just that, also the commandments of the Lord and Savior, so that's Jesus, through your apostles. So that's a reference to the apostolic teaching which produced the Gospels. Uh, by now, uh, Matthew has been around for a while, and uh, so uh, ha- uh, has Luke for a couple of years. And uh, I-, I think uh, it won't be very much longer before Mark produces his and then John. Uh, but it's not just that. We've also got the book of Acts that's kind of generated by Luke uh, because of the work of the apostles. And we've got the writings of Paul, which have no doubt started being collected together. We've got James, the half-brother of Jesus, has already written as well. So all of this is the teaching of the apostles about the teaching of Jesus and the actions of Jesus. And Peter says, I know I'm getting ready to be gone from this world before too much longer. Jesus told me that that was going to happen when I was an old man, and that's where I'm at. But I want you to know that you've got more than enough information for you to live right and to pass this information on. But Peter says also that he is very much aware that there are counter-messages out there. Verse number three, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers, people who make fun, will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. So what's he just been recently talking about? False teaching and false teachers who are all about their own fleshly wants. And he says, you guys need to know this is part of the prophetic reality. These troublemakers are going to come along. They are going to make fun of the core teachings of the holy prophets of old, of Jesus Christ himself, and of the apostles. They will say, so where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. And so this is only 30 years after Jesus ascended back to the right hand of the Father. And Peter says, these guys are going to be mocking the fact that we're waiting for Jesus to come back and finish the story. And they'll say, so, where is he? Everything's just progressing just like normal. And Peter says, they've forgotten some very important historical realities.